Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, Joe Shapcott. Joe Shapcott is a highly respected and successful English poet. And in 2010, she produced a collection called Of Mutability. Now, I must have acquired Of Mutability about 2012. And I read it through a few times and I thought it was a really good book of poetry. And then, actually quite recently, I read it again and every poem seemed to have blossomed, sort of flowered into something remarkable. Maybe not every poem, but loads of poems in the book, which I suppose is ironic as it's called Of Mutability and it's all about mutating and changing. I say it's all about... I'm always a little bit wary of collections with a big theme. I think as a stand-up comedian, I see some stand-ups who will do an hour-long show that is themed about a specific thing. And usually it's come about because they've got about 25 minutes of material on that subject. And then they've just put in some other funny stuff that's nothing to do with the theme, but they can crowbar it in a bit. And that can happen sometimes in poetic collections. It happens less in Of Mutability than many, many examples I can think of. There is lots of stuff about the different kinds of change. I believe Joe Shapcott wrote this either during or post having cancer and treatment for cancer. And there's there's poems early on about going for uh, therapy and stuff and about, I suppose, an actual physical change in the body. But then in interviews, I've seen a talk about how cancer and how getting over cancer produces another change, a sort of slight euphoric appreciation of the world, which is actually practically quite helpful for a, a, a poet. So there's lots of that stuff. I'd love to read you more and more. There's, there's, there's one about the reader becoming a owl. I suppose it's an owl poetry podcast. I've got to get these things correct. I wonder if I'll ever do one of these without a siren. In the back. Maybe that was the grammar siren that went off because I said A-L. But anyway, the reader becomes an owl and the transformation in that poem is fantastic. I, I nearly did that one, I've got to be honest with you. And there's a prose poem about killing a scorpion on the wall because you're so afraid of it and worried that it might kill you. And so it's a more nuanced example of change. The... You become the killer because, uh, or the speaker becomes the killer because of her fear of this killer insect. Any road up, I'm not going to do any of those poems. I'm, there are five poems towards the end of the book about trees. And regular listeners will know that I am a slight tree obsessive. And yes, I do hog. And I don't hog trees ironically or from any urge to be a self-styled, colourful character. I want to, when I'm around big, rough 
older trees. I have the urge and, um, yeah, I, I give in to it. Right, so the first, I'm going to read three of these five poems. They're quite short, but I want to get on because I don't normally do three poems in, in one of these podcasts, but I feel that these three operate together for me. So the first one is called I Go Inside the Tree. And I think your first thought is, do you mean physically or mentally or spiritually? Yes, all of those, I think, in this poem. And I think that recognises the tree hogger's urge. You kind of want to get inside. For me, it's I, it's like I can feel that sort of core strength and that persistence of the tree, the history of it. It's like I can feel that generating a sort of a, I'm going to say fizz, and there's a reason I'm using that word, which I will explain later in this podcast. Okay, so I'm going to read you the first Four-line stanza of I Go Inside the Tree. It's only three stanzas, this poem. Here we go. Indoors for this ash is through the bark. Notice its colour, asphalt or slate in the rain. So, indoors for this ash, so this is an ash tree, and I, she, she said at the beginning, I go inside the tree. So the speaker now is taking over. Indoors for this ash is through the bark. Notice its colour. So the speaker is like our guide. Notice its colour is the sort of thing a guide would say. And then explaining that colour, asphalt or slate in the rain. And asphalt is that sort of dark grey tarmac-y thing and slate also a dark grey but I think something is being set up here which is going to recur in the other two poems and that is the combination of the human and the natural and what that combination means that relationship between the two asphalt obviously being a human creation and slate being a natural one. So let's just log that now. No pun intended. Uh, not a phrase I often use. Generally, there is a pun intended, but not then. Anyway, yes, I think Joe Shapcott is setting up the idea of the relationship between humanity and nature here, and she will investigate that further in the poems I am about to read. Okay, then I'll give you the um, the last two stanzas of this poem. Then go inside, tasting weather in the tree rings. You know what? I was going to give you about stanzas, but I love that so much. It's it's not a line. It's it's a line and a bit. It's, tasting is from the previous line, but tasting weather in the tree rings has got so much going for it, alliteration of, of R's and T's. But the rhythm of dun-dun, diddle-diddle, dun-dun, um, and there will be a more technical way of explaining that, but who cares? Tasting weather 
in the tree rings. And the rings of a tree are all about its history and it, it will have been its response to that weather. I won't stop on every line, but I love that. I'm going to say it one more time just for me. Tasting weather in the tree rings. Okay. Scoffing years of drought and storm. Moving as fast as a woodworm who finds a kick of speed for burrowing into the core, for mouthing pith and sap until the oh my God at the heart. Oh, come on. It's so good. If you don't like this, maybe you're on the wrong podcast. Okay. Scoffing years of drought and storm. That is, again, this thing about the, uh, the weather in the, the, the tasting weather in the tree ring, scoffing years of drought and storm is a sort of two expressions of the same thing. The, the, the rings of the tree, which we all know denote age, but they also denote the tree's experience through those periods. The weather, for example, that it faced. So we go inside tasting weather in the tree rings, scoffing years of drought and storm, moving as fast as a woodworm who finds a kick of speed for burrowing into the core. It's an interesting mix of sort of awe and almost spiritual response to this tree, to its history, to its experience, Combined with things like scoffing, which is sort of Beano language, Beano comic language for eating. Normally, if, if you were getting more emotional about a tree, you wouldn't use a word like scoffing. Emotional about anything, you wouldn't use a word like scoffing unless you were getting emotional about the Beano comic, I suppose. But there's a, there's a reason for that, I think. It's possible that scoffing is used just as a sign of excitement and non-grand humanity, someone just experiencing this tree on their own terms. I also think it's possible that because scoffing can also mean dismissing, if you scoff at something, it can mean dismissing years of drought and storm because of the, the, the strength of this tree, it has just battled on through all that but also we've got this woodworm who finds a kick of speed for burrowing into the core we've got all this trees are so amazing they combine this human and natural thing and they have their history and their endurance but then we've got this woodworm with sort of go faster stripes tearing us through its scoffing years of drought and storm. It's, it's, a, it's a weird combination. Okay, uh, the woodworm who find a kick of speed for burrowing into the core, for mouthing pith and sap. Two of the things in a tree which are where uh, nutrition is, is uh, stored. But pith, that sort of spongy softness stuff, and sap, the actual... Sort of solution, the salts and the minerals and all that. No, I'm not an expert on trees. My response is much more emotional than, than scientific. But for me, pith and sap is the equivalent of flesh and blood for a, for a tree. That's what we are mouthing. So we're going through this 
tree at a rate of knots. Again, no pun intended. You know those knots you get in. Well, anyway, borrowing into the core, the core of it, the core of it through its flesh and blood, heading for the heart of the tree. And that last line, until the oh my God at the heart. And because of this, the speed of this poem, the rhythm of it, if I just read that last bit. Scoffing years of drought and storm, moving as fast as a woodworm who finds a kick of speed for burrowing into the core, for mouthing pith and sap until the oh my God at the heart. And those three monosyllables, oh my God, pull up the rhythm of the poem the way it might pull up the actual speaker who's experiencing this tree, who's going into the core. When it gets to the heart of the tree, Oh, my God, It's you might say that. And, of course, oh, my God, has got a sort of a colloquial joy to it, along with scoffing and um, the uh, the very hungry woodworm. But also it's got a religiousness about it. There are bits in Gerard Manley Hopkins' poems, a poet who we've covered on this series before, when he'll say, my God, and then in brackets, my God, and and identify that it can be a exclamation as well as a sincere statement. I think we've got both here. So I like that combination of the profound sense of the tree, the oh my God at the heart of the tree, and the fact that we don't undermine it by talking about scoffing and uh, the very hungry and indeed very fast woodworm. So I go inside the tree. I think that means I'm going to, yes, talk about the physical nature of trees and what one might find if one went inside the pit and the sap and the core after you've gone through this bark that's coloured like asphalt or slate. But I'm also going to talk about trees and our relationship to them. We may find them so appealing that we devour them like an overenthusiastic woodworm. But I think the woodworm is chosen to represent our urge to go inside trees because it also suggests that the tree is somehow damaged by that sort of desperate need, especially if you're a poet, to borrow to the core, to understand and... Yes, to imbibe the essence, the sort of uh, the meaning of the tree, to own it, if you like. And that takes us very neatly onto the next poem, which is called My Oak. That is the title. But there's a complication with this title because it's called My Oak. And then the poem, that block of writing which one gets under a title in a poetry book, in smaller print and in regular lines, etc., begins with a non-capital letter, a lowercase letter. And it works like this. My Oak is the title, remember. So you read it like this. My Oak has memory. So... The title and the body of the poem have become merged 
The poem's title doesn't have its own separateness. It is part of the first sentence. Now, you might think, oh, God, what does that matter? Believe me, poets don't do things like that. I'm not saying they don't have accidental brilliance at times, but I think there will be a reason that a poet as good as Joe Shapcott has entwined the title of the poem with the body of the poem. My Oak Has Memory. I think this is about, I don't want to get into a lot of deconstructionist theory here, but there's, a, there's an idea that a, a title of any literary work has a sort of sovereignty to it. And what I mean by that is that it puts the writer in charge to some extent. So it tells you how to respond to what you're about to read. And it sort of adds its own interpretation right at the top. So a title makes the poem more speaker-centric. If it's called My Oak, then you think this poem, oh, it's sort of about the speaker as much as it is about the tree, because it's called My Oak. There is an ownership of this tree that we're about to discover. OK, but I think that My Oak has memory of making the title and the poem joined like that, undermines the title and it brings it in to it democratizes it and reduces if not removes its sovereignty that might seem like you know god he's gone off on one again but it's relevant to this i think here we go and i have to read the title every time because it's part of the body of the poem my oak maybe i should shout it louder because it's in bigger print no my oak has memory. It put the wind which shook the sapling into the mass of its trunk. It put the prevalence of weather down Hunter Hill into its weighted curve across the skyline. So there's a beautiful description here of the memory of the oak just like in that that previous poem i go inside the tree when we talk about the the years of drought and storm um that the tree seems to remember in its rings this very clearly my oak has memory it put the wind which shook the sapling. So when it was a little thin tree, that wind that threatened it, that endangered it when it was so, so flimsy, it's put that into the mass of its trunk. So it's like the way we learn in childhood, our strength, our inner strength, the way to cope with bullies, with worry, with our parents' divorce, whatever it might be. There's the idea of the child there producing the adult. It put the wind which shook the sapling into the mass of its trunk. So it gained strength from that early onslaught. It put the prevalence of weather down Hunter Hill into its weighted curve across the skyline. And you must have seen trees 
like that when they've been blown so consistently and strongly over the years that they have just gone with the wind and form a sort of a, as it says here, a weighted curve. They're sort of arched by the wind. You can... I know we can't see the wind, but if the closest we get to seeing the wind is in the body language of those trees. Hunter Hill, by the way, I hadn't heard of Hunter Hill, but I like the idea it was a specific place name. And I discovered that Hunter Hill, wait for it, is the 955th highest peak in Wales. <laughs> the 900 and 55th and now it's in a joe shapcock poem there is hope for us all i think okay so this is the other thing so the wind which shook the sapling is in the mass of its trunk and also this tree put the prevalence of weather down hunter hill one imagines wind and rain into its weighted curve across the skyline so that is what it gained from those experiences my oak as the speaker is calling it now the my oak thing which seems to have been undermined early on by reducing the title to part of the body of the poem i think we're being seduced in these first four and a half lines to feel that it is the speaker's oak because the interpretation of the tree and there's no maybes in this there's no i wonder if the tree did this it's my oak i'll tell you what happened my oak has memory there's no qualifiers on that it just does and i'm telling you that because it's my oak it put the wind which shook the sapling into the mass of its trunk that happened i'm not saying it might have or it looks like it did it put the prevalence of weather down Hunter Hill into its weighted curve across the skyline. That's something that happened. I think it's so beautifully expressed, so well written, that we go with it. So we might have thought when we saw the My Oak title undermine that we should, oh, maybe we should be questioning whose oak this is. Can you own an oak? I suppose you can if it's your land or you planted it, but you don't really own a tree. I don't think. Watch the Lorax. Okay, little tip for you there. So I think, yeah, we've gone for it. Now, she continues. That infestation of caterpillars was remembered by the leaves, which contracted and thickened the next year. It remembers the seasons, or at least the length of darknesses, which distinguish them. So that infestation of caterpillars was remembered by the leaves which contracted and thickened the next year. So the, the leaves thought, oh, we're not, we're not having that again. We're not having caterpillars come and eat holes in us. We'll get a bit smaller and thus we can get a bit thicker next year. And the speaker watched that and has absolutely deduced with no doubt that that is what happened. As I said, there is no it may be or it seems like in this. It remembers the seasons, or at least the length of darknesses which distinguish them. So, a tree is able to sense the different amounts of light and dark 
it's getting and so does have a sense of the seasons. Obviously, sunlight's very important to a tree for um, reasons that we talked about in biology about 50 years ago. So I'm not going to talk about now. Right, so it's still very much, I know this tree, it's my oak, I know exactly what it's been through and what it did. I know how it experiences the seasons. Isn't it fantastic? My oak. Then there's a change. Our word is photoperiodism. But remember is not the word, nor is it my oak. Although I used to watch it every day when I lived across the field. Watch it respond to everything, everything else. This is quite a, uh, a vault fast two-thirds of the way through the poem. We've been responding to the speaker's oak in a very emotional way. The speaker is almost the tree. She knows it so well. She knows it has memory. Not that it might have, but it has. She knows that it put the wind which shook the sapling into the mass of its trunk, etc. Now, our word is photoperiodism. Who is our? That means, is that humanity? Is that the scientific community? There is a quote from Joe Shapcott in one of her interviews where she says scientific language is very beautiful each word opens a world and I think photoperiodism here sort of puts the brake slightly on the poetry of this poem and says let's stand back from this incredibly subjective response to this tree subjective to the point of my oak and maybe because I was going to do that, that's why I undermine the title by joining it to the body of the work, by removing its sovereignty. Our word is photoperiodism. That is a scientific word for an organism responding to seasonal changes and day length and light and dark and all that. So it's a phenomenon. It's a real thing. Our word is photoperiodism, but remember is not the word. Remember that she says earlier in this poem that the tree remembered that infestation of caterpillars, for example. She says the tree, my oak, has memory. But now she's shooting down the earlier section of the poem. Our word is photoperiodism. I'm happy with that because it's a scientific word. It's not subjective. It's objective. But remember is not the word, nor is it my oak. So then the title is really shot to pieces. It's not my oak. Remember is not what it does. That is me putting myself upon it. And I think Joe Shapcott opens up a whole poetic genre here, which we might call, I suppose, Wordsworthianism, uh, the idea of using nature as a way of expressing the inner life of the poet. 
and we use nature just really like we might use language. It's just a way of expressing. It's about us. Let's take nature and use it as a way of illustrating who we are and how we feel. I think once you bring in photoperiodism, the scientific word, which, as she said in that interview, opens a world, you are saying, let's stand back from this poetic tradition of just using nature as a a palette which we can uh, colour our own emotions with. She's saying our word is photoperiodism, objective, respectful, non-owning. But remember is not the word, nor is it my oak. And then she goes on, having said that with some sternness, although I used to watch it every day when I lived across the field, watch it respond to everything, everything else. So there's real love in that. This tree was a big part of the speaker's life. I used to watch it. Every day when I lived across the field, watch it respond to everything, everything else. It was a neighbour to the speaker. But I think at the end there, when she said, watch it respond to everything, everything else. So it responded to everything. Yes, it responded to the wind and the rain and uh, that terrible weather coming down Hunter Hill and that caterpillar infestation i used to watch it every day when i lived across the field watch it respond to everything everything else in other words not to me and i think there the speaker needs to show the tree is not dependent on the poet for life the poet sort of disappears at the end of that I used to watch it every day when I lived across the field, watch it respond to everything, everything else. So not me. So there's love in this, but there's an attempt from photoperiodism onward to be more objective, to not own the tree, to not make it an extension of the speaker, to not make it my oak. I'm going to do one more of these. Bear with me. I'm loving it anyway. It's called Cypress. Cypress, obviously, the tree, not the country. Uh, Cypress, maybe you say it. It begins like this. Visit in the dark. Again, it's a bit like the guidebook. When... um, We were told in Inside the Tree, notice its colour. We're given instructions on how to respond here. Visit it in the dark. Cicadas are inside your head as your hand reaches towards bark. You feel the latent heat first, then the surface scabbed with lichen. Wait... You can't see, but know from the fizz where touch meets memory. There are several points in this, and I wonder how many people listening to this are going, not lichen, lichen, you idiot. I'm talking about the word 
L-I-C-H-E-N. Well, we'll get to that. One thing at a time, visit it in the dark, okay? So we know now sight is not going to be helpful here. We're not going to be told that the bark looks like asphalt or slate because we can't see anything. Totally dark. We can hear, though, and one thing we can hear very much so is cicadas, those insects who make very loud noises and who feed on the sap from trees. So we're going to be around here in warm countries. I'm not going to do the sound, but it's, you know, you know, cicadas. Okay, then. A bit like that. Cicadas are inside your head, and that's what it gets like. That noise is so all-encompassing. It does feel like it's coming from inside you when there's loads of them around. Remember, it's totally dark, so your hearing is heightened, and these things are um, filling your head. Cicadas are inside your head as your hand reaches towards bark. It's dark You can't see a thing, you're reaching out. You know the tree's there somewhere, you're just reaching out. You feel the latent heat first. So the latent heat, the heat that was there and isn't there, and has remained even though the source of the heat has gone, i.e. it's been warmed up by the sunshine that day to the point where you you haven't touched the bark yet. You can feel the heat coming off it, the heat that's been retained from the day's sun. You feel the latent heat first, then the surface scabbed with lichen. Now, lichen is also, I know, pronounced lichen. Both are completely acceptable. Um, In case you don't know what lichen is, it's that stuff you see on trees, but you also see on stones and things. And it looks like a sort of fungusy, mossy, sometimes it's beautiful colours, sometimes it isn't. It's not actually an individual organism, so it's not a moss or a fungi. or it, it's, it's a combination of, of, of two or more organisms that live together, usually beneficially. And I know that sounds like I've got it off Wikipedia, and that wouldn't be a complete lie. But I had a sense there was something special about lichen. And my sense of specialness was quite a freaky experience, which I'll come to in one second. Let me tell you a bit more about lichen first. Like I say, it's not an individual organism. It, it's a combination of two or more living together beneficially, usually beneficially. The gap kind of blurs between what the separate things are. That is also relevant. Stick with it. What I especially like about lichen also is it's ridiculously hardy. It's like the bare grills of the things you see growing on stuff. They took it into sp- <laughs> they took it into space and they exposed it to open space, some, uh, and some lichen. They exposed it to open space. They kind of opened the hatch on it for 15 days. So it was just in space. And then when they got back to Earth, they checked it out. It was fine. It's just the same. I mean, that's how tough it is, lichen. 
The other thing that's interesting about it, and this comes onto my own experience, is that it's probably one of the oldest living things on Earth. That's the theory. They, they have dated some lichen at 8,600 years old. Now, I went to Stonehenge. Uh, it's been a few years ago. It was a, a, around about the time of winter solstice. That's how you've got to measure time when you're talking about Stonehenge. And I went there, and uh, I'm going to give you the story quickly. A little girl came up to me and recognised me off the telly and said, can I have my photo with you, me and my two sisters? And I said, yes, of course. And so we stood in a little line, and I grinned, and I said, hold on, where's, where's the camera? And she'd forgot that part and said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'll go and get my mum, she's got the camera. So I said, OK, it's fine, don't worry about it, just go and we'll, I'll wait here with you. And the three girls went off and they came back and we did the photo and it was, you know, uh, Stonehenge in the background. It was lovely. And then I, I don't want to get anyone into trouble, but it closed shortly afterwards, if you can imagine Stonehenge closing. It was dark. And, if, and a guy said to me who worked there, that was really nice the way you were with those kids. Do you want to come and touch the stones? Don't tell anyone. And that's why, I mean, you couldn't be more discreet than put it on a poetry podcast. Who's going to hear that? Yes, but no dates, no names, no pack drill. They'll never track this guy down. Was it a guy or was it a woman? Well, it was dark. So I went and I placed my hand on one of these amazing stones and they are covered in lichen. And now it occurs to me, because lichen has... It renews, so it's a bit like, do you remember Trigger's Broom? In um, There is a much more classical and literary uh, example of this to do with the ship of, is it Odysseus? Anyway, Trigger's Broom, was he said, I've had this broom 20 years. I've replaced the handle like three times and the, the brush bit about five times. Is it still the same broom? That's the philosophical debate. So... Is lichen the same lichen if it transforms and changes? But anyway, it meant that because Stonehenge is about 5,000 years old and they have dated lichen at 8,600, I might have been touching lichen that was there at the time, that, that, that heard those chantings, that those, those prayers, those pagan rituals that absorbed some of that vibe. Whatever it was, when I touched it, I got a proper fizz. My hand slightly fizzed. It might have been psychological, I don't know, but it didn't stop when I took my hand off. It last. I was on stage that night, I was on tour, that's why I was at Stonehenge. And um, I could still feel it in the dressing room. I, I, it was like, you know, when people say, oh, well, I shook hands with Lionel Richie, I'll never wash it again. I felt a bit like that. I, I thought, I'll never wash this hand, it's magical. But it did fade. The memory of it did not. And so this bit, the latent heat first, then the surface, scabbed with lichen you can't see, but know from the fizz where touch meets memory. And yes, where touch meets memory, in simple terms, the memory 
via the fingertips and the touch fills in what you can't see. So although it's dark, you recognise that fizz that you get when you touch lichen. And so your memory fills it in. It kind of draws it for you. Just that bit once more. You feel the latent heat first, then the surface scabbed with lichen you can't see, but know from the fizz where touch meets memory. Okay, touch and the memory of lichen, it it becomes visible in a sort of internal way. The reason I'm saying lichen at this point instead of lichen, I say both are correct, is I think lichen is a scabbier word than um, lichen. And so when it says scabbed with lichen, can you scrape that lichen off my back? Where Can you scrape that lichen off my back? Not so good. That's my theory on it. I believe that in ancient times people felt that lichen was the scabs of the gods or a specific god. Well, I'm, I'm not going into that. That's the first half of this poem. Anyway, you're in the dark, your head is full of cicadas, you're reaching out, you recognise the feel, the fizz of lichen, you can't see it, but your memory fills in what you can't see and gives you a, a mental picture of it. Okay, all great. Second half of the poem. Before all this... The scent, which is anti-language. Only as it drifts into your body, the words slip in as well. And made of earth, air, sun and human consciousness. So, before, when we went into the tree in the first poem I read, it was very sort of chronological, if you like, we arrived at the bark and were told to notice its colour. Then we went inside. We went through the rings. We mouthed pith and sap. And then we got to the, oh, my God, at the heart of it. So there was a real, we could feel the movement of the journey. This one, we've arrived at the tree. We've reached out. We felt the heat coming off it. We felt its scabby surface. We felt the fizz of the lichen. And then we get a, before all this, the scent, which is the anti. So the first thing we experienced was the scent of it, but we haven't told you about that. We're going to tell you that halfway through. We've switched things around. Why? Again, poets just don't do stuff like this for no reason. Why has that initial experience of the cypress tree, that scent, why has that been held back to the end of the poem? Let's hear it again. Before all this, so before all this touching and remembering, the scent, which is anti-language. Now, the scent is anti-language. That suggests that the scent is indescribable. It's concerned with deeper things, if you like, that the language can express something more animal in us. A scent, I suppose, is a sort of animal language, judging by the amount of sniffing my dog does of everything it experiences. So 
It's sort of saying, yes, before all this, the scent, which is anti. The other stuff, I've used language brilliantly to describe touching the lichen and and hearing the cicadas and that. But this, it's it's anti-language. It can't be described. I don't believe any poet thinks that. Every poet knows the power of language. And I don't think a poet would accept that something is indescribable in that way. So what's going on? Before all this, the scent, which is anti-language. The next bit is, and yes, I wish I had a a fanfare I could play at this point. It's one of my favourite poetic moments, parentheses. So there's a chunk in brackets that comes straight after anti-language. And in brackets it says, only as it drifts into your body, the words slip in as well. It's quite a comic tone. It reminds me a bit of the way the scoffing and speedy woodworm cuts through all that, oh my God, this tree's so marvellous. I love this tree so much. Suddenly there's a wee, this excited woodworm going through, having a brilliant time. That seems to happen in these brackets. So we've said in a very grand way, as one might when talking about this beautiful tree, before all this, the scent, which is anti-language. Brackets. Only as it drifts into your body, the words slip in as well. Okay, so I said it was anti-language in my uh, poetic way. Truth is, as you breathe it in, as it drifts into your body, the words slip in as well. So if you're a poet or just a human being who speaks, yeah, the smell is a sort of a very sensory, very animal thing. And you might say it's beyond words, but um, the words just follow it in very quickly. And before you know where you are, you know, you can describe it. You are experiencing it in language terms. That's what I think. It's a joke, really, about saying things like the scent, which is anti-language. It sounds like something Emma Watson might say on a perfume advert. I mean, to say something is anti-language and then immediately follow it with upfront formal language stuff like brackets, which is, let's face it, punctuation with attitude... Brackets or parentheses, if you like, in a poem take us out of the poem. They're sort of an aside. So I think what's going on here, the gravitas of the scent, which is anti-language, is wobbled by a sort of wink to camera. Oh, that scent's all deep and animal and anti-language, but... Don't tell anyone who's savouring the tree's special moment when it goes beyond poetry into the inexpressible. But, but, I'm actually expressing all that anti-language mysticism in language. Language, in fact, cradled in two big lumps of formal punctuation. Okay, back to it. Before all this, the scent, which is anti-language, brackets, only as it drifts into your body, the words slip in as well. Let's just try reading this without the bit in parentheses. Before all this, the scent, which is anti-language, 
and made of earth, air, sun, and human consciousness. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, I think we finally resolved the problems of my oak in this. Because our response, that scent, that scent which was supposedly anti-language, but we're going to tell you what it's made of at least. And it's made of earth, air, sun, all things it's scientifically made of, I suppose, that the, the tree takes nutrition from the, the earth, it responds to the air, to the sun. But this scent, which is anti-language, and made of earth, air, sun, and human consciousness. To me, that now seems to smooth the differences between saying this is my oak and I'll tell you exactly how it feels and what it experiences. And I'll use it maybe at some point in poetry to express what I feel and I'll, I'll just use it as, uh, as tools for that. This is saying our response, human consciousness, is a key part of this tree. It's in its scent it's almost like, do you remember that old thing about if a tree falls over in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a noise? It's almost as if the speaker is saying a tree emits scent in the forest, but if there's no poet there to experience that scent, does it smell? Maybe it's like that. And it seems to be saying, yeah, I know my oak and um, the definitions of my oak's experiences was not acceptable. But there is a place for the poet in all this. The poet is part of the experience. And I mean people generally in their response, but specifically the poet. It's a shared thing. And now I'm going to start calling that lichen lichen because one thing about lichen is that it's not an individual organism. It's two or more organisms living together, usually beneficially, you'll remember I said, and that the gap, this is my non-scientific bit, the gap is blurred between those two organisms and that is what happens when we respond in a good way to nature that the gap between this tree and the poet gets a bit blurry that the poet can't even see the tree but the poet's memory is building a picture of the tree in the darkness and the scent does make words slip into the body. It's not just an animal got feeling. We live by words, poets especially, and they are important and they help us to understand the world. And this tree and its scent is made of earth, air, sun and human consciousness. I switched to lichen here because I think lichen sounded scabby. Lichen obviously means to describe something as similar or even equal, I suppose. And I think we're getting here that the poet and the tree have got 
a bond, that, that the edges are blurred. And that is the way to experience nature and trees specifically. The first poem is called I Go Inside the Tree. The second is called My Oak. This one is just called Cypress. It's not her Cypress, but it's a cypress that she is part of in her response and in the experience of it as it's discovered in this poem. The fizz of the lichen seems to have triggered this poem's vault fast. It causes the speaker to realise suddenly the delicate and beautiful, mutually beneficial relationship between poets and nature. That fizz seems to unify Earth's oldest living thing with our reaching hand. Of, of course, it, it might just be me wanting to put my like and experience my connection with a different world via the medium of lichen somehow into this poem. To be fair, poems can be surprisingly interactive and we often find ourselves when we explore them. That is my contention. But um, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, pretty soon you'll be calling it my poem and the podcast will be called I Go Inside the Poem. I'll try and avoid that. Look, I hope that made sense. I hope I didn't frighten you with my Stonehenge experiences, but it was absolutely true for me, at least. So lichen, lichen, let's call the whole thing poetry. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.